Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. Hey, my name is Pete, and I'm so thankful we have a chance to enter a new book, and Parker was gracious to give me this patch. It's only two verses, and there's no Bible names. So you'd be blessed that I'm not trying to pronounce those. But our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It reads this, as Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. Father, we're grateful that you save. We're grateful that your heart was displayed for us on the cross. We're thankful that when we cling to the cross and we cling to you, we are transformed. We are made new. We are made right. I pray that your word would go forth. I pray that you would give us ears to hear um, your spirit's still small voice. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see all of the wonderful things from your word. And I pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. You'd remove selfish gain, selfish ambition from us, and you would make us more like you. We believe that, and we pray all these things in your son's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you were to go to anybody on the street today or at the grocery store or at a restaurant or gas station or something, and you were to ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? You might get a variety of responses from from somebody who's not a Christian. You would ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? At best, you might get some cordial responses. You know, it's, it means I'm a nice, you're a nice person, or it means you, you know, are religious, and that's kind of cool. You might get some neutral responses, right? Like, well, that's just your thing. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. We're good. You're a Christian. That's cool. I'm not. That's cool. At worst, you'll get very hateful things, right? To be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian means to be hypocritical or judgmental or angry or divisive. Oftentimes, Christians are known more for what they are against rather than what they're for, And these responses, these answers, uh, while not always, uh, they are not always wrong. And in fact, they're probably more right than some of us would care to admit. That's what, that's what you would get if you asked like anybody who's not a believer in the, in Ankeny, what it means to be a Christian. Now let's zero it in on each other and this setting right here. If we were to ask, if I were to ask you, or we'd ask each other, what does it mean to be a Christian? What would you say? Would you say that uh, it means holding a certain set of values. It means having just a a different moral standard than everybody else. It means having the right answer to get into the eternal life when you die. Is that what it means to be a Christian? Does it mean that you're not that type of person? I'm not that type of person. I'm not that type of person. I'm not that type of person. What does it mean to be a Christian? Another way to ask this question is what is and what should be the defining characteristic of a Christian? 
what is and what should be the defining characteristic of a Christian? What is and what should be the defining characteristic of a church? You see, you can't be, you know, you can't be a Christian in isolation. So whatever it means to be a Christian as an individual also means what it means to be a Christian as a church, a group of Christians, which means that the chief Characteristic, the defining characteristic of a Christian as an individual is and should be the defining characteristic of a group of Christians, the church. Is this making sense? What is that characteristic? What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, this is an important question for us in general to know that we should be asking ourselves often. We should be searching the scriptures, looking for that answer often. But it is also a question that Paul seeks to address in his letter to the Philippians. And over the next three months, we're going to be going uh, through the letter to the Philippians. And I'm really excited about this. And I hope you guys are as well. And one of the things that Paul is going to, to answer for us is what does it mean to be a Christian? Now that you are in Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? Also, what does it mean to be the church? What's the defining characteristic of a Christian? What's the defining characteristic of a church? Now, like I said, I'm really excited to jump into Philippians for a number of reasons, but one of them is because Philippians is chalked full of a lot of very well-known phrases of our faith. Um, I'm just going to list, these will be on the screen too, but I'm just going to list a few examples here. You have uh, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 121, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 127, as or I don't have that one up there, Never mind. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is the Christ hymn. Maybe you've heard this. This is that poem that Paul writes and he says, uh, Jesus was in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him, gave him the name above every name. That beautiful, profound poem is there in the middle of Philippians. Philippians 2.12, another famous uh, verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Next slide. Some more of them. Philippians 3.8, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 4.4, 4, this is a popular one. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 4, 6 and 7, don't worry about anything. In everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then finally, the gold standard for quoting verses out of context, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that's a lot of very well-known passages, and there's more that I skipped over. Uh, and they all come from one of the shortest letters in the New Testament, Philippians. It's four chapters. It takes 15 minutes to read. And I poke fun at the, uh, the last verse of taking things out of context. Um, but Philippians, in a lot of ways, is the bedrock for a lot of our theology. Those are beautiful verses. They're not just trite, pithy sayings that we say to comfort ourselves. Philippians, in a lot of ways, is the soil from which the fruit of righteousness that we have grows. And because it's so well popular, it's also dangerous that it's popular. Because what can happen is we can tune out what the scriptures might be saying. Philippians is, is going to be dangerous in, in not only in the fact that these verses can and often are taken out of context, but it's also dangerous because of the popularity of these verses, we can have a presumed familiarity with these letters. In other words, we can wrongfully assume that we know this book. 
we've heard the sermon series on Philippians before. We've done a Bible study on Philippians before. We have parts of it memorized. If you've been around church or the scriptures for any time now, Philippians is very, very popular. And it's dangerous because we can have this presumed familiarity. There's a quote by a guy named Dallas Willard. And he says this about assuming you know something when you actually don't, especially with the scriptures. He says, presumed familiarity has led to unfamiliarity. In other words, if you assume you know something, you actually don't know it. And that unfamiliarity has actually led to and can lead to profound ignorance. So the challenge will be for us going into Philippians, the challenge will be to put aside presumed familiarity, put aside assumed knowledge and to humble ourselves, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to have a child life like faith and rigor. I was uh, thinking about this the other day, you know, when a uh, uh, child is like around the pool or doing a game or something. And then you like, say you throw them in the pool and then they come to you and they say again, and you do it. And then they say again, 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 I've never, I, I don't have kids, but I'm assuming that that just gets, that just gets old after a little bit. But the point is, is that there's that childlike, like authenticity and excitement. And what does Jesus say? We need to have a childlike faith, which means what? We should come back to Philippians. We should come back to the scriptures. We should come back to Jesus and say again, teach me again, teach me again and again and again, and have that childlike faith. And so part of the challenge of Philippians that it's familiar and part of the, uh, the danger is that it's familiar and part of the challenge is to remove what we think we might know and just say, Lord, teach me. Lord, teach me again. Lord, teach me again. Here's an example of a presumed familiarity with the book of Philippians, and then we'll get into the text, and then we'll talk about a theme, and then we'll go from there. But here's an example of presumed familiarity with the book of Philippians. If you were to pick up a book in the library and said the word Philippians on it, or a devotional said the word Philippians on it, odds are it would say that the book is about joy. It would say Philippians, the book about joy. The book of Philippians is not about joy. It is about a Christ-like humility and unity that results in joy. Joy is in Philippians a lot. If you did a, just a, a command F and search the word joy, all of the hotspot would be in the book of Philippians. But the book itself is not about joy. It's about a Christ-like humility and unity that results in joy. This is one of those examples of a presumed familiarity. If we enter it thinking, I know what this book is about, we'll actually miss the message. So how do we avoid this presumed familiarity? Great question. Glad you asked. Context, right? Context is Key. We're going to look at two different types of context today. We're going to look at the historical context and the biblical context. First, we're going to look at the historical context. What is Philippi? Who are the Philippians? Where in the world are they? Literally, where in the world are they? Uh, and why is this important that we need to know this? So let's look at some uh, historical context. So first we have um, the city itself is called Philippi. And there we go, it should be on the screen. City itself is called Philippi. And it was originally, um, if you remember your history, it was originally um, inst instituted as a city by Alexander the Great's dad. This was in the Hellenistic age before Rome was on the scene. So Alexander the Great's dad made the city of Philippi and it's actually just north, uh, it's like on the northeast side of Greece, of modern day Greece, just south of Bulgaria. And so he made it. Then, obviously, Greece fell, and who took its place? Rome took its place. There were a lot of battles, all this stuff. Then this guy named Augustus, who, again, this is a little history lesson, but him and Mark Antony, they together, they killed all the assassins 
of Caesar, they killed them at Philippi. And so Augustus was like, I like the city because I got power. And so he actually refounded it in 31 BC and he had personal oversight over the city of Philippi. And what he did, and this is important, what he did is he took a bunch of army veterans and retired uh, political leaders and he put them in Philippi. So Philippi has this deep sense of patriotic nationalism. You have all of these old retired military veterans. You have these old retired Roman politicians. And so the phrase that was used in Philippi more than any other city is this phrase, Caesar is Lord. It would be the equivalent of like long live the queen or something. They would just say Caesar is Lord. So you have this deeply embedded nationalistic, patriotic nationalism, if you will, in Philippi. And the phrase, when you say goodbye to people, you don't say goodbye, you say Caesar is Lord, you know, see you later. Now, if if you're thinking about Philippians, later in Philippians, Paul says that Jesus is Lord, which is again, another uh, tip for why we need to know this. So that's some of the historical context. It's a a very, it's not, oh, it's also not a big city. It's like maybe 10,000 people. So not big at all, pretty small. That's historical context. Now let's go to some biblical context. Biblical context, where in the Bible does Philippi land? Who is there? Who is not there? Well, if you remember in Acts 16, the story of the church of Philippi is actually recounted in Acts 15, or 16. Acts 15, Paul is in Jerusalem. And then at the end of Acts 15, Paul wants to go to Asia. And it says, this is really interesting. It says the Holy Spirit stopped him twice. Two times, Paul's like, I wanna go to Asia. And the Holy Spirit's like, nope, don't go there. And he's like, okay. Second time, he's like, I wanna go to Asia. And the Holy Spirit's like, nope, don't go there. Paul goes to sleep. He has this vision of this guy in Macedonia, which is the region of Philippi. And he says, please come and help us. So Paul wakes up and he goes straight to Macedonia and he goes to Philippi. So he gets there in Acts chapter 16 and he, he, he interrupts this women's Bible study. Seriously, there's women having a Bible study by a river and he goes there and there's this lady named Lydia and she's pretty wealthy. And it says that the Lord opened her heart. She was a God-fearing woman and the Lord opened her heart and she received the good news in that moment. That's the first convert is this woman named Lydia in Philippi. Lydia was so persuasive that she actually persuades Paul and his friends to stay there. So they stay there longer than they're planning on staying there. And while they're there, they're going to another prayer meeting and there's this demon-possessed slave girl. There's this demon-possessed slave girl and she can actually predict the future. And so she was owned by, you know, bad guys and they would get money from her predicting the future. So people would, people would be like, oh, hey, predict my future. And she'd be like, all right, give me money. So they give her money and then she'd predict the future because she's demon possessed. And then the money would go to the owners and it was just really oppressive and bad. Well, the slave girl is walking behind Paul and Silas and yelling at them. These are servants of the most high God proclaiming the way of salvation. It says in Acts 16 that they, she did this for many days and Paul became greatly annoyed, which always makes me feel a little bit better whenever I get greatly annoyed. It's like, okay, see, Paul did it too. Just kidding. It's not justification. <clears throat> Paul becomes greatly annoyed and he cast the demon out, which is great for everybody except two, her owners, her slave owners. Because why? She's not, she can't predict the future anymore. So they're not getting money. So these guys rally the, they, they actually see, it says they seizes, they seizes, they seize Paul and Silas. They bring them to the marketplace and they say, these guys are causing a ruckus. These guys are not from Philippi. They're coming in here. They don't know our Roman ways. They don't know our Philippian ways. We need to get them out. So they beat Paul. They flog them. They brutally beat them and Silas. 
and then they throw them into prison. This is where that famous scene of Paul and Silas at midnight singing in jail, their hands cuffed, if you guys remember. Their hands are cuffed, they're in chains, and they're singing praise songs to the Lord in the middle of prison. This earthquake comes, the jail is, you know, shook. Their chains fall off, and the Philippian jailer wakes up after the earthquake, which always struck me as interesting, like he just slept through an earthquake casually. The Philippian jailer wakes up, he recognizes that all of the people are gone, the, the chains are gone, and he is about to kill himself, because in that time, if you let a prisoner escape, you would pay for it with your life. So he wants to kill himself to shortchange the process. And instead of doing that, Paul says, stop, 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 stop. We're all here. I'm here. Silas is here. All these other people are here. Don't kill yourself. We haven't gone anywhere. And the Philippian jailer falls down at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul then presents the gospel. He says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it says that that day, him, his household, they were all saved and baptized immediately. Paul stays a few more days preaching the gospel and then he leaves Philippi. That's the story of how the Philippian church started. You have this wealthy woman named Lydia. You have a a demon-possessed slave girl who is now freed. And you have a Philippian jailer. That's the church that started Philippian, the Philippian church. So Paul is now years later, years later, Paul is doing his thing, the Philippians are doing their thing, and they have this connection, this special bond. Every time Paul is somewhere, the Philippians hear about it and they encourage him. Every time Paul is in prison, the Philippians hear about it and they send him a a letter, they send him money, they send him clothes because in that time, if you were in prison, if nobody sent you anything, if they didn't send you food, you starved. If they didn't send you clothes, you froze. If they didn't send you, you know, a blanket, you went cold. So um, Paul would be in prison and the Philippians would hear about it and they would send him a gift. Which brings us to this letter. Paul was in prison years later. The Philippians now, the church is growing. You have Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. They're preaching the gospel. They're discipling one another. The Christ community is growing in Philippi. They give Paul a gift through this guy named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus takes the gift, whether it was food or blankets or whatever. He brings it to Paul and Paul wants to write a thank you letter to the letter to the, to the Philippians. And that thank you letter is the letter to the Philippians. So it starts out a very practical purpose. Paul wants to say, thank you. Thank you guys. And uh, it ends up being a very beautiful theological treatise, but th- Paul eventually sends this guy Epaphroditus back to the Philippians with this letter in hand and he reads it to them, and that is the letter that we are reading today. So that's the historical context. That's the biblical context, right? With that context now, let's go back to the beginning of Philippians and look at verse one and two again. I'm gonna read these again, and this is just like the general introduction. Philippians one, one and two. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A few things to note here. Um, First, Paul is probably recollecting all of the memories he had at Philippi when he is sending this letter. And one of the things we'll see is that this is one of the warmest letters that Paul writes. Paul writes to his friends. These are his friends. Paul remembers Lydia. Paul remembers the slave girl. Paul remembers the Philippian jailer. 
So he's saying Paul and Timothy, a couple other things. The word in the CSB says servants, but the Greek word, and I think a better translation, is actually the word slaves. The word really means slaves of Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, you'll hear at the beginning of a letter, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul will take his title as apostle and use that as uh, leverage almost to get them to listen to what he has to say because with the Galatians, they're messed up. The Corinthians, they're messed up. And so he basically says, Paul, I'm an apostle. I know Jesus, you need to listen to me. Here, what does he say? He says, my status does not matter. In fact, my chief identity is that I belong to Christ. That's what a slave is, somebody who belongs to another. Paul is saying that my identity is that we, me and Timothy are on the same level, same playing field, and that we are slaves of Christ Jesus. They're not slaves to the Roman Empire, even though they're in prison. They're not slaves to Apollos, Paul, anybody else. They're slaves to, they belong to Christ Jesus. Then he says, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Including the overseers and the deacons. Um, the overseers and deacons is underlined. This is, a, this is one of the verses that we, here at AGC, that we use to do two things. One, to make sure we have plurality or shared leadership. And this is also why we have two offices. We have overseers, which is the same word for um, elders or um, pastors, those are all interchangeable, and, and deacons. So we have two offices. So notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm writing to the lead pastor of the church of Philippi and then to all the people on staff and then to everybody else. Who does he say first? I'm writing to all of the saints, as in every single person who has confessed Jesus as Lord, this is to you guys, to y'all, if you're from the South, Right? And then he says, also, I'm including the people who oversee, the elders, the pastors, and the deacons, plural. Not one overseer, not one pastor, not one shepherd, not one deacon, plural, overseers and deacons. Now actually is a good time to um, introduce our deacons. Here at AGC, you've known that we've had pastors, and we've had shared leadership with the pastors, but Nate and Janet, if you guys could stand up where you are and wave. We are introducing... Um, we are excited as pastors to introduce to you our first deacons. We've been, um, thanks. I thought that was gonna come naturally, but you guys can take a seat. We have been talking with Nate and Janet for some time now. We've been um, talking about what it means to be a deacon. The word deacon is just the word serve. Uh, we've been um, praying for the church and it's an ongoing process that we're continuing to, to figure out and, and, and serve alongside with each other. But uh, we are really excited and thankful uh, for you guys to be stepping into this role. Um, and if you guys have more questions about deacons or pastor elders and, and want to pick our brain, um, feel free to talk to Janet, talk to Nate, talk to myself. Uh, and we can, we can, we'd love to talk to you about that. So Paul says, including the overseers, including the deacons. Then he has this general greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier I said that the uh, theme of Philippians is not joy, but it's rather a selfless humility and unity in Christ. We're gonna be exploring what that means, how that means it, if, if that's true or not the next three months. But this is why we've decided one of the themes we're gonna be highlighting is this theme of the phrase, the way up is down. The theme that, we, that will be kind of 
prevalent right before our very eyes throughout the whole letter of Philippians is this idea of the way up is down. Everything in our lives is up, right? Up, 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 up and to the right, up and to the, that was so funny. I said up and all of your eyes just rose up to me. That was not my intention. But uh, everything in our lives is up and to the right, right? More, 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 better. More is better, bigger and better. Bigger is better. If anything is less than, if anything goes down, it's a bad thing, right? Numbers go down, you know, the speed of something goes down, right? Like it's, it's just a bad thing. So everything in our lives, in our worlds, and in this world at the same time is bigger is better, more, the way up is everything needs to be up and to the right. Yet, at the center of this letter, the center passage, that's like the sun that all the other passages kind of hover around is a completely different way of living. It is not the way up. It is not up and to the right. At the center of this passage, of the center of this letter, there is an entirely different way to flourish as a human. How do we think of flourishing? Well, I just need more of it and then I'm better. I just need more of that and then I'm good. At the center of this letter is an entirely foreign way and an upside down way to joy, to life, to peace. Paul says that the peace of God that surpasses understanding is able to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How and why does he say that? When I think of a peace that surpasses understanding, I think of a life that doesn't require faith. I have everything I need, so I don't need faith at all. Then I'll have peace. Paul clearly doesn't believe that. He's writing from prison. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through him who gives me strength. What did he say right before that? I've learned the secret to contentment so that whatever situation I'm in, if I'm in poverty, I'm content. If I have wealth, I'm content. If I'm starving, I'm content. That is not the world we live in. At the heart of this letter, we see the heart of God. And the heart of God is a self-emptying heart. The heart of God is a self-humbling heart. The heart of God is one of a downward mobility. The heart of God is a heart that condescends out of love. The center of this letter is the Christ hymn. Christ is in the form of God up here. Christ is in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, to be taken advantage of. But rather he emptied himself, self-emptying. He assumed the form, the form of a slave. There's that word again. He took on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself, self-humbling heart and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, gave him the name above every name, that the name of Yahweh, Jesus' name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the heart of the letter of the Philippians, that the way up is actually down. This is the heart of the God that we serve, a self-emptying, self-humbling God. 
And this is now our heart. When we say, I'm in, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, not the saints who try to be like Christ Jesus, so they force themselves to try to be more humble or be more selfless. No, no, no. When you are in Christ Jesus, this pattern of living, this downward mobility actually can become our pattern of living. When we are in Christ Jesus, the, the needs of others become more important than the needs of the self. This is why Paul says at the end of chapter three, he says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, right? But first, I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the goal and the prize. Now, this is not just a masochistic, like, well, I just need to torture myself in order to do that. No, that's legalism. But we do know that God, what? He hears the cries of his people. And so when we adopt the same attitude, which is in Christ Jesus, of self-emptying, self-humbling, when we recognize that the way up truly is down, then God not only empowers us to do that for the rest of our lives here on earth, but he will also vindicate that because he vindicated his son. He will also raise us from the dead because why? He raised his son from the dead. And so the letter of the flip, and then what's the result of that? The result of that is we have a smile on our face and no matter what situation we're in. The result of that is a unity between every single one of us. The result of that is a, a forgiveness that just comes naturally from us. And the, the result of that is joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say re rejoice. Why? Because we know that Christ loves us so much and that when we are in, we receive that love and then we are in Christ, we actually don't just try to force that love on other people, we actually become that love. There's this quote I love. Um, it's by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. The real son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and his kind of thought and his kind of spirit into you, bringing, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. That's the Christ that we serve. That's the heart of this letter. That's what Paul means when he gives this beautiful poem, when he says, I actually count everything that I've ever done as rubbish. When he gives Timothy as an example of what it means to live selflessly. When he gives Epaphroditus as an example of what it means to live selflessly. When he says, we should think these things, whatever is pure, true, noble, we should believe these things, we should think these things. And this is also why he says, rejoice. You have the only reason in anybody in human history to be able to rejoice. Stephen Neal says that, what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian means to be like Jesus. So we start where we end where we started. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the defining characteristic of a Christian? First of all, it means to be in Christ. What does that look like? Self-emptying love. Selflessness. The needs of others are more important than the needs of ourselves. The way up is down. What makes Christians different from the world is not just a set of moral standards. It's not just the answer to the key to get open the door when you die. It's not in anything else. It's, it's, it's actually, we can now actually become the gospel. We preach the gospel, we proclaim the gospel, but now in Christ, we can actually become the good news of the world to a broken world, to a hurting world that we feel and experience ourselves. We can actually now become that to others. I'm excited to keep talking about and reading through Philippians because I'm excited about these themes. We're gonna be touching on a, a few other themes as well, but those are the main themes for today. And this idea of the way up and down, 
If you, if you think about Jesus was in the form of God, self-emptying, self-humbling, where is the bottom of that U shape? It's in the cross. He became obedient, the point of death, even death on a cross. Scholars and architects call this a cruciform shape. Cruciform. Cross, form, shape. Cruciform life is one of embodying the life of the cross, is one of following Jesus in his sufferings and death, is one of also eventually being raised from the dead and vindicated. So as, you, is, as we continue to read through Philippians, a question I wanna ask is, is your life cruciform? Is your life cross-shaped? Can we actually pray with Paul? I want to know God and the power of his resurrection, but I also want to share in his sufferings. Nowhere is this more um, evident than in the cross, like I said. And this is why we have communion every single week because we're reminding ourselves that the life of Christ was cross-shaped. It was towards the cross and then it was through the cross. And that means that the life of the believer is towards the cross and then through the cross. And so I'm gonna uh, pray here in a minute, but before I do, um, I wanna give us time to, to pray, to think ourselves and to, to think for ourselves. If there's sin that you have to confess before you take communion, confess it. If you don't know where you are in, in your relation to Christ, if you're not in Christ, then we would just ask that if you've not, never believed and you're not in Christ, that you would just not take communion, not partake of communion today. This is for believers. Um, and as we do that, we remember Christ's body and blood given and broken for us. So at this moment, I'd invite you guys to stand up and come to the table and uh, grab the elements. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.